Hi, and welcome to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and prison abolition. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Wilson. Beyond Prisons is a 100% listener-supported podcast. If you'd like to help us build this community, you can do so by becoming a monthly sustaining donor on our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash beyondprisons. I recorded this conversation with Dr. Venezia Mickelson back in February of this year before the pandemic. It's taken us a while to catch up with publishing all of our backlogged episodes, and we appreciate your patience. Dr. Venezia Mickelson is an American intersectional feminist criminologist whose work focuses on gender and imprisonment and reentry from incarceration. Mickelson received her BA in 1998 from Barnard College and her PhD in criminal justice in 2007 from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She was the Director of Analysis and Client Information Systems at the Women's Prison Association until she began her career as an academic in the Justice Studies Department at Montclair State University in 2008. She is currently an Associate Professor of Justice Studies at MSU. Dr. Mickelson interrogates the use of incarceration as a response to women's survival strategies in the face of childhood and adult abuse. She also focuses on women's experience of reentry to the community from prison and jail, and in particular on the role of children in women's desistance from criminal behavior after incarceration. Her first book, Mothering and Desistance in Reentry, was published in 2019. Always an advocate for women who come in contact with the criminal justice system, Dr. Mickelson's more recent work has involved fighting for abolitionist policies in her home state of Connecticut. Dr. Mickelson is the mother of an eight-year-old autistic boy and her advocacy work for him and other children in special education has led to the formation of special education PTA in her town and she is working to increase police training on interactions with disabled people. In her free time, she loves to ride her bicycle hike and uh, hike at Sleeping Giant State Park and lift heavy weights. We hope you enjoy this episode. I was reading your article uh, because I'd been looking at the Prison Policy Initiative's um, uh, latest uh, publication on uh, women uh, in in, uh, prisons and jails. And Mm -hmm. uh, as I started, you know, thinking more about this, I'm like, okay, you know, what are people writing about these various issues? And that's how I came across your article, uh, Abolitionist Feminisms as Prisons Close, fighting the racist and misogynist surveillance, um, quote unquote, child welfare system. Um, And in that article, you argue that the state system of surveillance will not end as formerly incarcerated people return to their communities. And you focus on how black mothers are targeted for the kind of hyper surveillance um, by these helping systems such as child protective services. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, the article, what motivated it, um, what, you know, what that work is uh, for you and what you hope we get out of that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, (laughs) it's such a big question. The broader question is about the prison industrial complex, obviously, and how so many of us are fighting to close down these um, these cages uh, that we've been using for so long, particularly in the United States and particularly in racist ways, but overwhelmingly, frankly, for uh, males. And so as we close them, however, 
we have to be thinking about what's coming after that. And Michelle Alexander obviously wrote um, uh, an incredible article um, back in 2010 um, called The New Jim Crow, and or a book in 2010 called The New Jim Crow, um, but then followed it up in 2018 with an article about um, decarceration mm-hmm. and about the many technologies um, that companies are starting to use and governments are starting to use to continue to make money off of our prison industrial complex. You know, I, back in 2005, Mike Jacobson um, wrote a book about how we were going to need to start closing our prisons and jails just because they were far too expensive. Mm-hmm. And that the that we you know obviously we care about far more than money but that money is the one place that can get people on all sides of the aisle to come together and that if we then are are able to come to a place where we realize okay we're spending way too much money on something um that's sort of a conservative talking point and then on the moral sort of liberal if you will progressive if you will side of the argument we're harming people um these prisons and jails are not working then how can we then come together to close these things and michelle alexander's point not her alone but many people's points then many years later is okay so people are starting to see the writing on the wall and they're not going to be able to make money off of these systems in the same way that they always have so how can we watch for how they're going to start making new ways to make money off of these things. Um, And for me, it's fascinating. It's very, very important. You know, I'm involved in Connecticut in the fight for free phone calls um, Mm -hmm. for incarcerated people and their families. Um, And I think organizations like Worth Rises, for example, in in New York City are attacking the money side of this, the sort of corporate money-making side of the prison industrial complex in a way that fights for abolition. It looks like reform, but I believe it's fighting for abolition Um, because once people can't make money off of it, (laughs) they're going to look elsewhere. Um, But at the end of the day, our prisons are filled almost entirely with men. Um, And my focus uh, in many, many different ways, including my academic focus, is on the women that we incarcerate and the women that we um, are reentering society after incarceration. And those women are not only affected by the criminal justice system um, in the same way that men are because of their status as primary caretakers of children. Mm-hmm. And because of their status as primary caretakers of children, and because not just women are impacted by their own incarceration, but the incarceration, so women who are affected by their male partners, fathers of their children, um, and their incarceration, because they are then in the community caring for their children. Mm-hmm. And so then a, a racist and misogynist system is not going to let go of its eyes on the community just because a prison closes. Mm-hmm. So I was looking very, very much at the work of uh, Cecilia Gorosami. Um, mm-hmm. She's just an absolutely brilliant theorist um, mm-hmm. who researched with formerly incarcerated mothers. I also did my own research with formerly incarcerated mothers and um, the um, well, we could talk about that later. But in terms of this article, um, I, I looked at very much at Gurusami's research where she um, used participant observation to mm-hmm. look at the ways in which 
um, child welfare systems disguised themselves as ways to protect children and families and mothers, mm -hmm. when in fact they were simply inserting themselves into the lives of these women who are already surveilled in so many different ways, who are already at risk of uh, are we're already poor, frankly, not at risk of poverty. They're already in poverty. Their children are already at risk within our school systems. So having an extra set of eyes that's constantly watching was only going to affect how these women mother in negative ways. And she had three different ways that she talked about how this impacted their mother work, mainly because they're terrified of separation from their children. Mm -hmm. You know, my own, my own work looked at the ways in which women's incarceration separated from their, separated them from their children, and then how getting back together with those children after incarceration impacted their lives. And this is saying, fine, you've got your kids, your kids are with you, but these people are going to come into your lives and they're going to watch you. And even if you're doing everything according to the book, when who wrote the book, by the way, but even yeah. if you're doing everything according to the book, then you're still going to be terrified and it's still going to impact everything that you do with your children and make it so that you cannot mother in the way that you would mother if you weren't constantly being watched. And because mm -hmm. you're black and brown and because you're poor and because you have a history of incarceration, you're, you're terrified already that your kids are going to get removed. And all this does is create this incredibly anxiety provoking cycle whereby your mothering suffers and your children suffer and you suffer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and so many thoughts uh, running through my head as, as uh, you're talking um, about that there. I want to go back uh, to something that you mentioned earlier, because I think that this is an important, um, an important point. And one that as you correctly pointed out, um, is a point of convergence for people on different sides of the political spectrum, right? Um, yes, and that's yes. uh, the too much money uh, thing. But we also need to recognize that the things that we're talking about as abolitionists are also going to cost money, right? Yes. <laughs> and yes, the, so the phone calls, if we're dealing with that with this phone calls issue in Connecticut, absolutely. We've got $4 million we need to find. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that, you know, I, I think that it's important to constantly, you know, remind people that the things, you know, if you want to call them solutions or the various systems that we need to put in place or structures or what have you um, to, you know, not necessarily replay or not even not necessarily to what do we want instead of this thing that we have, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That that yeah is going to cost us money and we need yeah. to be um we need to be clear about that i, I feel like mm -hmm. um oftentimes or too often um we tend to sidestep that and downplay the right. you know and it makes it seem as if we're just going to do this for free or that mm -hmm. you know nonprofits and individuals you know or uh some you know i don't know uh philanthropist is going to come along and just throw money at folks who want to do this kind of work. And it's like, no, let's figure out how we take that money <laughs> and yes. you know, use it, um, use it for the, to build the world that we want. Right. Yes. And you yes. know, come, from, you know, from those same sources. But I think that, you know, if we're going to 
push back on the state and uh, and continue to rely on the state, then we need to ask the state for for that money to do those yeah. things and not create um, structures and systems um, that continuously, you know, expand the carceral apparatus into people's communities um, in the ways that you mentioned in the article. I mean, child protective services um, and what have you, you know, re-entry, the entire re-entry um, yeah. mechanism is really, um, and this is where my research, uh, you know, comes in, um, you know, reentry is bullshit. <laughs> it really is. It's like, you know, I, I said this in in the episode that we just published with um Michelle Jones that, you know, right. um when does reentry end? Right? Like we're constantly surveilling, you know, people. Well the point and- is is that it doesn't. <laughs> you know, exactly. the point is is that it doesn't end and that and that, that ends up making it profitable and not having this end game of you know sort of self-actualization frankly you know um allows it to be a money maker moving forward mm-hmm. um you know i i i worked in um in reentry in new york city um at the women's prison association for a few years mm-hmm. um you know and and i i saw a lot of organizations you know I, I don't live in new york anymore but you know i saw a lot of new york city organizations and you know the ones where where it felt like it was actually doing the work were the ones where it ended. You know, I mean, I think about, mm-hmm. um, about um, college and community fellowship under Vivian Nixon, you know, oh, where, you know, CCF is looking to get people to be doctors and lawyers and, and, and never see them again. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Um, I, I also, I, I thought a lot about our children um, in, in Long Island city and Queens and, you know, they were a little bit more sort of in the, in the depths of sort of when it first happens and, um, but really trying to get people out instead of this sort of constant focus on, I mean, yes, recovery, is a forever process and all this, but, you know, making it so that reentry wasn't the analogous to uh, recovery um, mm-hmm. in that it just never, ever, ever ends and that it just keeps becoming grants, grants, exactly. grants, grants, and grants. Exactly. Like this perpetual state of affairs yeah. where it's like you're constantly having to check in, whether it's with you know, child protective services or another organization not reproducing this probation that yep. that we're saying that we want to dismantle. Um, yes. I'm glad you brought up uh, Gurusami's work because that was uh, something that you know I'd been thinking about as well, and uh, we'll definitely link to both your article and uh, to Gurusami's article in the show yes. notes. Uh, for folks that are interested, um, but her article, Mother Work and State, and uh, there's a, a longer um, subtitle there, um, is absolutely brilliant and critical yeah. to understanding um, the, many of the points that you're making, right? And talking about how Black and Brown women's mothering is really compromised and that these systems that are supposed to supposed to protect women uh, are in fact reproducing violence, right? And yes. I feel like this is, again, another important point that deserves much more attention. And um, as I was driving back uh, back home today, uh, I was listening 
to uh, NPR and, you know, I didn't catch the entire um, the entire show and I don't know what the show was, but they were talking about, you know, stand your ground laws and uh, the case mm. in Alabama, um, you know, with the woman who's basically facing life uh, for having killed her abuser, right? And this is, you know, the kind of thing that, you know, we're trying to, talk, you know, uncover here and discuss because the kinds of tactics that women use and the things that women have to rely on um, to protect themselves to survive are themselves being criminalized. And yeah. um, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I, I want to hear from you. <laughs> well, I think a lot about, you know, for me, um, I feel strongly that um, the I mean, as someone, I have never been incarcerated. I am a, a white cis woman. I have never been incarcerated. Um, but I also feel strongly about the nothing about us without us. Um, mm -hmm. So I think a lot about um, Taylor Nouvelle, for example. Um, so, you know, you talk about the, the, the criminalization of survival strategies, um, you know, within criminology, you know, because at the end of the day, I'm an academic. Um, and that mm -hmm. really is my standpoint in this in this fight. Um, uh, that's my strength. Um, and so um, pathways theory um, is, a, is a relatively old at this point, uh, feminist criminological theory that talks about the ways in which uh, abuse of girls in the home uh, leads to status offenses, um, running away, um, being truant from school, that type of thing, um, which then can, which is then criminalizing their, again, criminalizing their survival strategies. You know, if you're getting abused in the home and you run away, you're trying to protect yourself, but then in the mm -hmm. eyes of the law, you've committed an offense. And then that can end up in um, drug use, which then can end up with shoplifting, sex work, all of these different things, right? So the pathway from abuse to survival strategies to criminalization is the way that the uh, academic, feminist academic criminologists have talked about it. And then Taylor Nouvelle, on the other hand, um, she talks about the trauma to prison pipeline, mm -hmm. um, a, a phrase that she created where she talks about um, um, the ways in which her own trauma um, and then the trauma of other women in the system impact uh, their behaviors and how our system, I mean, it's, it's just a completely broken system, you know, for everyone. But, you know, my focus is on women and, and Taylor's focus is on women and, and the ways in which so many of these people are being criminalized for things that really are the exact way that they should be handling these things mm -hmm. and that they're criminalized in particular for black and brown women. Um, and, you know, and I, and then I think about Mariam Kaba, right. And this question mm -hmm. of transforming harm, you know, I was, I'm thinking back to what you were saying, you know, these things do cost money. And sometimes I, I look at Mariam Kaba's work and I'm like, oh, God, like, it's so beautiful. <laughs> you know, this sort of image of what we could possibly do. It's, I mean, it's it's also painful and hard and, and difficult. But, you know, there's something so beautiful about it. But um, sort of how, how do we get to that place where we are aware of this harm, this sort of monumental mammoth harm and the ways in which the system merely makes it worse and reproduces it. And then, and how do we make that into some, a system that is completely different or a lack of a system, you know, mm -hmm. sort of a, a, a way to react to this harm in a way that doesn't just make it worse, um, especially for black and brown women. Absolutely. And their children. And yeah. their children. 
Exactly. Exactly. Um, we've had uh, Taylor on uh, the program. We had her on. Oh, okay. I didn't see that. That's great. Last I didn't know year. Um, and, uh, and we talked a lot about, you know, um, her work and, and her writing, uh, but we tended to focus more on not just her experience um, inside, but we talked about the, um, the episode is about knitting and how she used knitting as a way to, you know, um, to survive and, you know, deal with being incarcerated, but also how she found it difficult to knit once she got home, right? Because it was, it had mm. strong, you know, connection to being inside and it took her, um, right. her a long time to get back to that. Um, but yeah, the point about, you know, the money um, really came from Mariam Kaba. Um, that's something yeah. that, you know, um, I've heard her say um, more than a couple of times uh, that, yeah. We have to be clear with folks that, you know, the the stuff that we need, um, mental health, child care, um, health care, yeah. you know, all of these things um, are going to cost money. And yoga, frankly, <laughs> yoga, right? I mean, right. Creation. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm doing yoga um, in part because, you know, that the, I've been basically unable to do much of anything for the last four months. I've been really sick and I've been um, physically uh, stuck in my house um, for almost four months. Uh, and it's been absolute hell. And I've been, you know, to the hospital and to doctors uh, a few times over those uh, months. And all I get is a prescription and, you know, go home and rest. And I'm like, right. I can't move. No. Like literally I could not move. I could not get out of bed. And, you know, a few weeks ago, I'm like, you know what? Fuck this. Like I'm in pain and I'm going to be in pain no matter what I need to, you know, I'm going to go ahead and try it. And, um, and I started, at least I can, you know, at least I have some mobility. Um, now yeah. and I can move with ease and I can shower without having to have, you know, my partner in the house because I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to get out of the bathtub. Like that's right. where we're talking, you know, and, yeah, it's, uh, and it's hard and it's hard. And that's the thing, you know, for me, I think about, I think about women in prison as this concentration, right? One of, one of the things that I'm focusing on right now is the way in which criminology in general has focused so much on men because mm-hmm there are so few women incarcerated and it's been an excuse for so long. We don't study women because there's just not enough of them because they don't commit enough crime because there's not enough bang for the buck. You know, you wouldn't really, you know, the theories, if they understand men, you know, Wolfgang, frankly, talks about it. how many years ago, you know, if you can find these people that are committing so much crime, then you impact it so much more. And then you don't have to worry about the rest of it. But my point is, is that women commit so little crime, right, compared to men, compared to men, but women commit so little crime compared to men that by the time we've got the women who are incarcerated, it's such a concentration of Mm -hmm. harm and of pain and of suffering and of all of these different difficult things, right? I mean, we all know the stories of correctional officers who refuse to work with women because they're malingerers, they're liars, they complain all the time, they never shut up, right? All these different things, you know, all of these different complaints that we have about women that not we, they, you know, people have about women who are incarcerated, but it's because, because it's the reality, right? It's the reality that these, this is where, you know, my uh, my dissertation was called um, uh, a, a cell of one's own, mm-hmm. and it was because you know 
I think <laughs> white women and, and, and women of privilege, you know, of, of all different uh, colors and, um, and identities can go to college and have a, a room of their own to, to sort of sit and figure out who they are. Right. Mm -hmm. But that for, for black and brown women who are, uh, who come from this trauma to um, prison pipeline, um, who have suffered so much, they end up in these cells to try to figure out who they are. And it's this concentration of harm. And it's where, frankly, I think that criminology needs to focus. One of my new projects is looking at exactly that, is saying, hey, criminology, forget men for a while. By looking at women, by looking at mothers in particular, we can actually figure out where these struggles are most of all because that concentration within our prisons our women's prisons allows us to identify that sort of biggest harm and then also frankly the fact that most women despite everything that they're going through still manage to avoid criminal behavior mm -hmm. in ways that men don't right mm -hmm. and so why not study the why not focus on the fact that women are still able to avoid criminal behavior despite everything that they're going through yeah. and despite all of these different strains and stressors and all the responsibilities of children and and everything else that's going on in their lives yeah yeah i mean and and to that i would say you know again it's uh you know we uh our research uh coincides or, you know, converges in, in interesting ways here. Um, I mean, criminology, you know, had always focused on men. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, um, you know, and I mean, it's, it, and the fact that we have, you know, that that's the field, right? The field is criminology and a focus is on crime or what gets coded as crime is yes. part of the problem, right? Like yes. there are no... Yes departments of prison abolition at any university right. instead we have are basically cop academies you know yeah. and um <laughs> you know it, it's so the idea that um and I, I agree with you that we need to understand the problem and we need to have documentation of the problem so that we can say that this is the thing that's going on and this is what's happening and this is uh, you know how we shift not just the conversation people's consciousness um public policy and laws and what have you uh to you know more align with that while we're attending to you know the dismantling project that that's something that I think happens um, or needs to happen simultaneously. And um, yeah, I don't know if you wanted to say something about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's all about having a critical eye. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about how you've been struggling for these past four months, you know, and how just in general, it's, it's exhausting, you know, and how all of it is, is really, <laughs> it's, it's tiring because you have to just constantly have this critical eye. It's mm -hmm. what I try to ask of my students. It's try, it's what I try to ask of myself as much as possible, constantly poking holes in, in what anybody says is objectivity, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and as you say, sort of studying crime, crime statistics, you know, my own neighborhood where everybody says, oh my God, there's a huge crime uptick. Everybody's breaking into cars. You know, but what's the actual reality and this sort of constant trying to flip people's brains over and realize that what they think is the harm is not actually the harm. Exactly. And that it, the more that we can focus on the true harm 
and and also long-term solutions to harm um you know then the better off we all will end up being but that it's difficult it's it's complicated and it, you know it's again it's exhausting to sit here and 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 make it more complicated constantly trying to make it more oh, yeah. complicated absolutely you know I mean, people ask me all the time you know it's like oh you know do you have a book that's coming out or have you published or whatever and i'm like i have two sons that were <laughs> life in prison without the possibility of parole or what we call you know death by incarceration in yep. 2013 i was also suing my employer for racial and sexual harassment at the same time, while I was also fighting with my dissertation committee so that I could finish and get the fuck out of there. And it's like, <laughs> so, so no, no, I don't, <laughs> you know, seven years. And it's like, of course my body is, you yes, know, shutting down where it's like, you know, because trauma, you know, it lives in your cells, right? Yeah. Trauma lives in your cells and it yeah. changes, you know, um, it changes everything. It changes yeah. absolutely everything. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, we don't talk about carceral trauma enough, right? Or no at all. I mean, I don't hear no that yep. phrase being used and, you know, yeah, had, you know, someone's going to go ahead and write an article before I have time to write it, but whatever, we know where it came from. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yes, let's copyright that right now. I love right? it. But I mean, you know, it's brilliant. But yes. it's the idea that, you know, it's it, it, you don't have to have been someone, you know, that spent time in prison, um, you know, or what we call justice involved or, you know, whatever right. other terminology you want to use, that there are a lot of other people who are impacted um, by the carceral state in yes. really significant ways that are yeah. not being, you know, that are not being looked at, that academia has no interest in. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think I've been to a conference ever. Um, <laughs> and maybe it's just the conferences that I've gone to um, where the focus has been on, you know, mothers with children inside. Like that's just, you know, whether those are younger children or adult children inside. And most of the women um, that I know, you know, who have sons, uh, and it's mostly sons, uh, Incident. Inside, that's been, you know, that's basically been my reality, um, yes. are also having tremendous, tremendous health problems yeah. and, and suffering and suffering silently and without help. And there's no community showing up. Oh, and shame, right? Yeah, right. Because there's so much shame attached to it. And it's not them, right? So mm -hmm. there's this sort of worry about sharing something that's not about themselves. And it's incredibly expensive. You know, again, you know, we're, we're fighting for no cost phone calls here in Connecticut. Um, you know, Connecticut started out as 49th in affordability of phone calls. Wow. Um, and, and through that, yeah, believe it or not, liberal Connecticut. Um, and so and through that, it's been actually quite wonderful to see a number of mothers um, be able to speak about their stories and speak about, you know, the costs 
and the pain and and all everything that's associated with not being able to contact their loved ones or if they're going to contact their loved ones that they have to sacrifice a bill or a meal um, or or something else and and adjust to be able to speak to the loved one or to be able to put some money in commissary Absolutely. you know and and the, and then the fact that, you know, corporations like Securus are then making millions off of this, off of our communities, but then also winning the PR war. Well, they're not winning it here in Connecticut now, right? We've got momentum on our side now here in Connecticut. But for the longest, having a, a PR win as well, because, you know, well, why should taxpayers have to, you know, let these people have free phone calls and the impact of all of that, right? All of that on top of itself, you know, mm -hmm. not being able to talk to your kid, worrying about paying your bills, you know, just being sick. I mean, I, you know, I'm a mom. I, I have a little boy um, and, and I know how hard it is not to see him for a short amount of time, mm -hmm. you know, to imagine him in, in a cage um, and I can't talk to him unless I can't pay a bill. I mean, I'd, I'd be puking all the time. Oh, you know, no. Of it, course, I mean, that's going to impact your health. Yeah. It's going to impact your ability to get anything done at work, your ability to have any type of relationship. Yep. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to go too deep into my, you know, to my own experience. I mean, I've shared some of that on here and uh, we have something mm -hmm. coming up where we're going to I'm going to be talking more about that. But uh, absolutely. Yes. To all of the above. I mean, it's really, you know, um, it's really upsetting and frustrating and it's uh, exhausting, as you pointed out. I mean, I, you know, have been very fortunate to have. Um, folks in my corner that have been able to uh, support me and prop me up in, you know, many different ways um, so that I could, you know, just keep going because yeah. heaven knows that without those people, um, I would not be sitting here right now. Uh, having Getting out of bed in the morning. Um, yes. I probably, you know, I would probably be, be living on the streets or something. Uh, and yes. it's, and that's real. That's like real yes. talk. Um, and yeah, no, I don't think that that's, yeah, you know, I think that's absolutely um, reality for people. The, something you said earlier reminded me of, uh, you know, this thing, the exhaustion, I think you were talking about and, you know, the, there's also a requirement, especially if you're an academic, um, you know, and you're experiencing these things and this is your life, like it is for me that, mm -hmm. you know, people always ask me, it's like, well, are you presenting? Or are you doing this? Or are you doing that? I'm like, I do enough already. Like, are you kidding yeah. me? Like, <laughs> Go yeah. back. You have 50 episodes. That's your education right there. There's, you know, yeah. there's your paper right there. But I'm like, like I'm required to have, or the expectation is that, you know, I should have the, you know, emotional and physical wherewithal to develop a sociological analyses of the conditions and experience that I'm having and translate that into something that other people can consume. And, you know, it's like, while I'm also dealing with all of this stuff at the same time. And I'm like, yeah. you know what? God bless you if you can do that. And you have that energy to do that. I'm not, you know, I'm not knocking that, but I'm like, there have been days where it's just like, no, fuck this. I just need to rest. I need to and, get out of bed. Yeah. And that's or not get out of bed. You know yeah. what I mean? Yes, um, absolutely. So I wanted to ask you, um, because you talk about this in, in that piece and uh 
and I think it's it, again an, another important point. You you talk about white carceral feminism, um, yeah. and that it's done. You know, it's done much to intensify the relationship between punishment and women's uh, victimization. And yeah. I'd love to hear more about that. Well, you know, <laughs> I think that. The prison industrial complex has done a lot to make white women feel as though they are safe. Mm -hmm. Because when white women feel threatened, the creating punishments that are more and more severe um, makes them feel as though the problem goes away and they can go about their business mm. and that they can just forget about uh, about being worried. I mean, you know, what you and I have been talking about so much, like being worried about about everything, right? But that so that if something bad happens, we just punish it away and people, bad people go into their cages and we don't have to worry about it anymore and we could just be happy again. And the problem is, is that nobody, that, that within that sort of, I call it VAWA, I mean, a lot of people call it VAWA feminism, right? For the Violence mm -hmm. Against Women Act. Um, and that, and that this white cultural feminism, you know, as you say, sort of focuses on on this immediate so-called solution to a problem, um, without thinking about those consequences. Because generally, they don't have to live with those consequences, right? Mm -hmm. White women's kids, for the most part, you know, I, I think the intersections with disability. Um, my own son uh, is is autistic, you know, um, and he's. Um, and though he has white skin, uh, I think that the disability, that intersection is um, is important. Um, mm -hmm. But still, for the most part, when white women's um, children get in trouble, they don't end up in cages and, and families. And, and when, you know, sort of white women, you know, obviously in particular with means um, have problems, problems generally get solved and they don't have, they don't end up homeless or they don't end up without health care. They don't end up without jobs or without money. Um, so that by, by punishing, uh, by using our criminal punishment system, um, they can just make the problem go away. But then, you know, the problem is, is that then under that layer, you know, once they get to put it away, you know, I think about law and order, you know, and the minute that the mm -hmm. episode ends and the credits roll, and then everybody just goes on and makes dinner, except that that's when life happens, right? Exactly. For so many different people, that that's when somebody goes behind the cage, you know, the, 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 the bars, and that's when somebody has to start paying for phone calls, and that's when somebody has to start, you know, figuring out, how they're going to pay the bills and and what they're going to do about their kids bedtime story that night mm -hmm. you know and 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 so that you know frankly I as a white woman it's one of my jobs to communicate with other white women who are going to be particularly likely to listen to me, mm -hmm. right? To say, wait a second, like, you know, cause I think about you, right? As a woman of color, why should it be your responsibility to transmit your pain to get mm -hmm. other people to understand, exactly. right? Like why should you have to bleed yourself dry again so that somebody will feel bad and then understand it when frankly, it's just going to end up being trauma porn and they're not going to listen anyway. Whereas okay. with me, 
somebody, you know, uh, who I don't have an incarceration history, but maybe that will make sort of, you know, these white carceral feminists more likely to listen to me because then I can look at them and say, wait a second, so you lock somebody up and then what? What's, you know, what happens then? And somehow perhaps, perhaps from my particular standpoint, I can get people to understand, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense. Not only, not only is it cruel, and racist and misogynist and all these different horrible things, but it also just doesn't make any sense. And it may make you feel better. What I say often to my students is it may, it may sate your bloodthirst, right? It may make you feel better that somebody has been punished just because perhaps as humans, we have that um, sort of drive, but it doesn't actually work. So I don't care if it makes you feel better. I care if it works to reduce harm and it does not mm-hmm. in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, uh, prisons are not feminists. Prisons no. are not feminists. I mean, I think no, we can, you know, <laughs> we, we can keep saying that. So until people actually pay attention that, yeah. you know, um, you need to have, as you you know pointed out, uh, an intersectional understanding of this problem, and understand yeah. that you know for Black women, particularly Black mothers, um, certainly for Brown you know uh, Brown women as well, uh, that we're the ones who have to figure out how to put money on commissary. Um, yeah. I usually put money on several people's commissary, right? So yeah. whatever we yeah. get, you know, from the podcast, um, that money, you know, my share of it really gets put back onto, you know, people's books so that they can call their daughters or their moms or what have you. They can maintain a connection with folks on the outside, right? So yeah. we've got my sons taken care of, right? But the people taking yeah. care of my son, it's just like two or three of us. Right. That's not, you know, that doesn't include men. Right. Right. (laughs) It's like it's the burden falls on women. Right. And that includes legal fees, travel and expenses to go, um, you know, to visits, making sure that, you know, they get magazines and books and other things so that they're not bored out of fucking minds sitting there, you know, day in and day out. And they have some, you know, little outlet or sense of reprieve from the entire situation while you're trying to do all of the things that are required in daily life. So that yes, and the emotional labor. Yes. Yes. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. At the cost, you know, overwhelmingly these costs are on, women in all of these different ways in all of these many many different ways and frankly i'd like to say and yet women keep getting up in the morning and they keep hugging their kids and they keep calling their kids and they keep doing all of these incredible things and you know what and sometimes they don't frankly right sometimes Mm -hmm. they sometimes we stay in bed but at the end of the day then we get up again and we keep pouring out our hearts and we keep giving love and we keep giving to commissary and keep giving making phone calls and we continue to do all of this different caring labor in all of these different ways and that's one that's one of the main reasons why so what there's fewer women by far fewer women in the system I don't care like I still think that we need to focus on women because of all of these different things that women are able to do 
in this broken system. And if we can start to heal the system, right, we could start to build a new, better system. Imagine what we would be capable of, right? I mean, I'm thinking, you know, this work that I'm, that I'm, that I'm building right now, right? I'm working on a book proposal right now. And, and part of the end is like imagining this is trying to get a broader audience to what is this abolitionist future, right? Mm -hmm. So what, you know, again, obviously in, in the incredible footsteps of so many people are doing this work, including Mariam Kaba, right? You know, Mm -hmm. just sort of trying to amplify the work of all these people, sort of imagining, frankly, a, a feminine you know, sort of focus of all of this, you know, that, that an abolitionist focus is a, is a feminine focus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that may be the, the thing that a lot of people, um, you know, push back on. Uh, I mean, I, I get it all the time. I get these, you know, questions and things that are, frankly, I, I, I become more flip, um, if that's even possible in my world, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, it, it's just, like, you know, they're like, but what about this? Or what about these folks over here? And what, and I'm, you know, I just finally say, okay, you really are coming at me in bad faith. Like you're not asking the question that you actually want to ask. You're asking me all these different questions because you want to play gotcha, right? Like you're really trying to figure out one, how do you continue to justify this, you know, shit show and yes. say that, you know, th- this is the thing that we need, right? And yes. because yes. women are the ones who bear the burden, right? And we're the mm-hmm. ones, something that I looked at, you know, um, in in my uh, doctoral work as well, in terms of, you know, who is taking care of the children, right? So you have all these yes. men who are inside. It's women. It's their grandmothers. Yes. It's their mothers. Yes. It's their girlfriends. Who's there yes. to show up when these men get out of prison? It's yes. women, right? It's yes. like when women walk out of, you know, prison or jails. And this is, I think, an important point. And it's in um, the Prison Policy Initiatives report. And I'll make sure we link to that in, um, in the yes. show notes well, that 80% of women in jails are mothers, right? Yes. Yep. And, you know, that's like, that's a huge, huge number. A huge well, and you know, well, and, and, and not just that so many incarcerated women are mothers, right? Because so many incarcerated men are fathers too. But it's about who, it's about number one, who's the custodial parent before those people, before exactly. those parents go away. Overwhelmingly, the mothers are the custodial parent Absolutely. before they go away, number one. And then number two, who's caring for those children while those parents are inside? When men go to prison, the mothers of the children take the children overwhelmingly. But when mothers go to prison, those children don't go to the fathers. They go to Mm -hmm. other, I mean, sometimes they do, but most often they go to grandmothers, they go to aunts, they go to sisters, Mm -hmm. they go to also mothers on the inside. You know, and it isn't, right, so it's it's mothers who are incarcerated, then what happens to those children? Those children are far more likely to go into foster care when a mother is incarcerated, far more likely to be in unstable housing situations because what are grandmothers gonna do? For example, you know, they're they're older, they're less likely to be employed, all of this. You know, they're unable to get kids to visit their mothers while their mothers are incarcerated. Mothers are overwhelmingly incarcerated farther away than fathers because there's fewer facilities so that the kids would have to travel far more. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but, but not only that, but then when mothers are on the outside and they're caring for children, all of the different requirements of caring for children. Plus, when when the fathers get out, if they come back, 
again, as you say, like, it's not as though then it's all clouds and rainbows. (laughs) You know, they get back and they're coming back with substance abuse struggles. They're coming back without jobs, frankly, with challenges to their masculinity in ways that sometimes get them to respond in ways that are are very negative. And they go back, right? It's not Mm -hmm. as though they come back and don't go back. They then they go back. The recidivism rates in this country are absolutely dismal. So then women are, you know, so, so, and it's not as though when a man gets out and he goes back um, to his family, he's then happy go lucky until he goes back. No, it's a challenge again. And domestic Absolutely. violence is a thing, right? And you talked about the stand your ground case, dealing with domestic violence, and then thinking about child's welfare, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who's been somebody who's been traumatized in prison is not going to come back to a house full of kids and find it super easy and happy to come home. It just doesn't work that way. The kids are angry. You're angry. And tempers are going to flare. And then what happens if Child Protective Services get involved? And then the moms have to deal with it. And I hate to pile it on like this, but it's sort of the point, right, is that we've created all of these systems that just pile on to women and their families in ways that are just so incredibly stressful and make people, frankly, ill and unable to parent effectively. Absolutely. And and we obscure those ways as well, because when we see people showing up, right, or they don't present as being sick, right, or whatever that's Correct. supposed to be, just ableist right. as fuck. But, you know, we can have that conversation another time. Um, yes. But it, it, is, uh, it is piling on, right? And this is yes. where I think um, that uh, Gurusami's work, right, really is. Uh, yes useful, right? Because she talks about these different, you know, strategies and interventions um, that, you know, mothers use, right? That women use um, to, you know, to deal with, you know, or to try to figure out how to survive outside of this system, right? So she talks about um, the collective mother work, right? And uh, Mm -hmm. what that means, right? And uh, I'll let you elaborate on these um, different points, you know, she talks about hypervigilant mother work, right? The constant mm-hmm. hovering and being, you know, concerned with and, you know, not letting your kids go anywhere, right? <laughs> or do anything, yeah. right? It's like really constantly staying, you know, very close because if something happens, um, then you might lose custody of your child. And that's a real right. thing, right? And also, we, and also we not focusing. Sorry, go ahead. No, you. <laughs> Well, just and also not focusing, you know, a big part of the hypervigilant mother work was also about how women ended up hiding their own needs, right? So that when moms had mental health struggles or substance abuse struggles or, you know, as um, if you've got kids with extra needs, it might be an extra struggle. But because you don't want to talk about it because you're so worried about it you don't talk about it. You're so worried about losing your kids that Mm -hmm. you don't talk about your own needs. But at the end of the day, then you're not getting the mental health support that you need. You're Mm. not getting the parenting help that you need. And you're not getting the substance abuse help that you need, which is going to harm you and your kids even more. But because they're so terrified of removal, right, because the state can hold this possibility of removal over your head, you're not, I mean, honestly, you know, 
what would anybody do in that situation? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go, you know, if I'm in that position, I'm not going to go to a social worker and say, you know, I'm really feeling depressed and down. And, you know, they they immediately ask you, are you feeling suicidal or homicidal? If you say that you're feeling suicidal, you're you're gone and the kid is gone. Yeah. Then what happens to your kid? So, of course, you're not going to say something. Of course. Of course not. And I mean, it's like I think that that is. um yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, uh, your article as well as Gurusami's article are really um, important parts of, you know, this conversation and help um, shed light on uh, on this problem. Um, we only have like, you know, eight or nine minutes left. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you know, if, if there's anything else you'd like to um, touch on or elaborate on so that, you know, we can talk about that. Yeah, sure. I, I wanted to, so first I wanted to say that Gurusami's last um, sort of conceptualization was this, was crisis mother work. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so you and I, we talked already about collective mother work, um, which is sort of when formerly incarcerated women live close by to share things like childcare responsibilities or, or resources and information so that women could protect each other from, um, from uh, removal of children, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then hypervigilant mother work, obviously, we talked about. And then crisis mother work was just simply sort of when there was sort of this immediate threat um, of losing a child um, sort of or, or, you know, to to the state or um, sort of prevented, um, whether they're worried about having reunification prevented or, or their own incarceration um, uh, prevented. Um, that w- women sometimes have to sort of react in this crisis way. Moms have to react in a crisis way. That means that sometimes they might lose their job because they don't go to work or they don't call in mm-hmm. to, to say that they need time off, right? And that that ends up sort of in the long term, again, thinking long term, that impacts them and their children more negatively. Um, but just, yeah, I wanted to just give yeah. give uh, Gurusami that the sort of the full treatment there. Um, and, you know, though I know you'll be linking to the article, um, you know, for me, for me, most of all, um, I think we covered pretty much everything that I would want to talk about. Um, I just wanted to, you know, make sure that, um, I often find that my perspective on things can make people feel a little bit powerless, um, because it's just it all really kind of sucks, right? That there's so many things that are, as we said, piling on to these moms and sort of how do you get through that? And um, I think for me, um, the way that it, it sort of, it's a little more manageable is by trying to work towards specific things that can build towards abolition. So, you know, I know I've talked about phone calls a few times, but just to speak specifically, um, Bianca Tylek at Worth Rises in New York City uh, has really been driving the effort in um, in Connecticut. Uh, and really what's left, so, um, is about $4 million um, that we need to find in the state budget. And that um, we need the Connecticut legislature to um, meet with our governor um, to find that last $4 million um, mm. so that we can make phone calls no cost in Connecticut. 
um, and that anybody who is interested in joining our fight, in particular, um, the stories of people who are impacted by the high, high cost of phone calls um, are, are so incredibly valuable. And WorthRises is bringing this fight, obviously, to, to the whole country. Uh, worked in New York City, uh, San Francisco, and Connecticut. Ideally, hopefully, Connecticut will be the first state, or hopefully another state will beat us. I don't know. I don't care about being first, I guess. Right. Um, but fighting, fighting Securus, um, you know, in particular in Connecticut, fighting, fighting Securus as a corporation that's just making millions off of our most vulnerable communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully this is, this is the year that we're going to get there. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think to to your point about, you know, uh, folks feeling, you know, hopeless or frustrated. I mean, one, they should feel frustrated. Um, yes, it's that's like true. You're right. you should be absolutely unsettled um, listening to this podcast in general and into uh, all of these things because they're frankly horrible. Um, but yes. I think that there's, you know, when I read something like your um, your article or Gurusami's work, um, you know, and I think about, you know, things like collective mother work that for me, I find that um, reassuring um, mm-hmm. and that these are the kinds of, you know, not just survival strategies, but this is a form of mutual aid that yes. women have created for themselves mm-hmm. without being attended to or, you know, overlooked or whatever by any kind of, you know, formal system, organization, uh, government. Yeah, women are getting it done anyway. Yep. Women are getting it done. That's what the hell we do because, you know, we've had, we've had to do that for a very long time. And, uh, and I find, you know, like I I do, I take comfort uh, in, in those examples. And if, you know, folks are reading uh, those articles and they're like, well, there's nothing I can do. Everything's a shit show. Um, And go back and listen to some of the earlier episodes and go do some reading, which is basically what I tell my students. It's like, okay, you're really (laughs) not, you're not listening, right? You're not listening because if you can, you know, hear these, hear about, um, these, you know, whether we're talking about individual cases or more in the aggregate, um, that there's a lot of hope in that, right? That uh, the kind yeah. of work that, you know, women are doing um, is pretty fucking badass and that we keep yeah. going and that we keep striving and that we're the ones really standing out at the forefront of wanting um, to create, you know, a better world yeah, a few years ago, there was a lot of talk about, you know, being an ally and what's a good ally and all that stuff. And I hate that term. I grew to despise the term ally and allyship. Um, yeah. You know, prefer more prefer the, the term uh, accomplice. Right. So a good accomplice <laughs> like that. Yeah. Is really going to, you know, say, OK, you know, um, I know that you folks aren't going to listen to me or you hear it from me and, you know, uh, and it depends on the audience, right? Um, Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's also important to know when to be quiet too, right? As an accomplice, right? I think about good accomplices and good accomplices don't always know, right? Because we're going to muck up, but, you know, but often know when to be quiet to let other people speak when they know more, Mm -hmm. um, and also when they need to, when others need to speak more, but then also when, when it is our job to be uncomfortable, because it's often very uncomfortable and 
gross and messy, you know, but, but that sometimes, you know, it's our job to take on the messy stuff because it's going to be more effective. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I, 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 I don't know. The word ally bugs me too. Uh, I like accomplice much better. I like that too. Um, <laughs> Until we find you know, another but, term. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or, or maybe, you know, or, or who needs a term, right? Like I, I just, exactly. you know, it's, it's the space where, where, you know, I, if people are going to listen to me and they're not going to listen to somebody else, then it's my job to, to do that speaking and mm-hmm. to, to make that argument mm-hmm. um, for, for what is just. Yeah. 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 On that note, well, Venice, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate thank your you work. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your time. And I appreciate um, yours. Yeah. Look forward to your book. Make sure we get a, a copy so that we can have you back on uh, when that comes out. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you find our work valuable, we ask that you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work by sharing this and past episodes on social media. If you're financially able to support us, you can do so for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash beyondprisons. We recently launched our new website, www.beyond-prisons.com. There you will find a Beyond Prisons guide for supporting prisoners during the COVID-19 crisis, including a link to a downloadable PDF in small and large print formats. There's also a section on mutual aid projects that we update frequently and a list of demands that includes a call for the immediate release of prisoners. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. Beyond Prisons is created and hosted by Kim Wilson and Brian Sonstein. Ellis Maxwell edits our episodes and Victoria Nam manages our website and volunteers. The music is by Jared Ware. We'd like to give a special thanks to our many volunteers who are helping us transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible, as well as our donors who provide 100% of the funding for this show. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.